Dog Training Digital presents the eCollars Podcast with Robin McFarlane and Steve Snell. So today, let's talk a little bit about common mistakes that people make. We see certain things from a customer service side, but what do you see working with people? What are the common things that people have a tendency to mess up when they're working with a dog? Uh, well, I would say the because the... The things that people say, for instance, if I'm doing lessons with somebody and the lesson goes really well and they leave and then they come back for the second lesson and I say, how is it going? Well, it went really well for a while and now it seems like he's reverted. Number one mistake people are making is not putting the collar on tight enough. <laughs> yep. Yep. It just doesn't fit well. And so we've been teaching the dog this tactile system that he's learning to pay attention better because he's feeling sensation. And then they put it on too loose. He's not feeling anything. So it's as if you quit giving instruction to the dog altogether just because everything oh, changed. Yeah. So yeah, you're pressing yeah. the button and nothing's happening uh, at all. That is a common question or issue that we see from the standpoint that people are very hesitant to put a collar on as tight as it needs to be. I always tell folks that you need to put it on tight enough where the collar's not going to be moving around. They're like, well, it's too tight. I'm going to choke the dog. I'm like, you're not strong enough to, to get. If you're worried about that, you're not going to do it. And so some folks will say you need to be able to put one finger under it or two fingers under it. I don't know if it, once again, it depends on the dog, but I think the biggest thing for me is I don't want to move it around. Is that, is that your take on it? Uh, and I, when people say the one finger, two finger thing, I don't think it's ever been explained. Are you supposed to be able to get them under the collar strap or are you supposed to be on, under the contact points? So sure. I don't even use that thought process. Okay. I say, All right. look, when you're, when you are going to use your finger to test the fit, I want you to go underneath of the contact point and it should take effort for you to be okay. able to, you should be able to get your finger between the skin and the contact point. But if it's just can slide and you can see light coming through, then it's okay. obviously way too loose. So wow. if you can get your finger under it and it takes a little bit of, you're going to have to dig into the skin a little to get under the contact point. Now you okay. got a good fit. Okay. So, and I've showed that to people many times just because they don't understand. And whose fingers are we talking about? One or sure. two fingers when they're just going on the right. collar strap. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, okay. That's just such a common mistake if the dog sure. isn't feeling anything. But I think the worst part about it too is that, that you get that inconsistent where sometimes he's feeling it, sometimes he's not. And then mm -hmm. I think that's something that people struggle with. And it's hard to put them on. I'm comfortable telling people it's hard to put them on too tight. I, I would say that depends on if they're going to wear it for a long day. Sure. Because in my industry, I'm probably telling people, if you're with your dog all day, then I want him to wear it all day. Okay. So then I would have to worry about it, potentially pressure necrosis if it was sure. too tight. The whole idea of choking, if they're worried about the dog choking, hand him a treat and see if he can swallow. Sure. The next he can one. swallow. Yeah. He's yeah. not choking. Right, right. He's good. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. So, so collar fit is a big deal. What else? Do you a have? super huge deal to not do enough training on leash first with your e-collar. People okay. go to be an off leash out in an uncontrolled environment and they aren't getting the response they want. That's because they haven't done enough work with the leash to help the dog learn what to do. So that's a common one. And I will tell people, again, my industry in the pet industry, we're using collars in the house quite a bit. Sure. We're teaching the dog to stay in his place when the doorbell rings and that kind of thing. So I tell them, leave a light leash or a, a right. drag line on the dog in the house because you have sure. to be able to help them. So that's you know, another big one. 
Yeah. And when we say drag line, that's typically line that does not have a handle or a knot at the end of it. That way it's going to get through almost anything. Yeah. I don't do quite as much of that in the house, but it's real handy. And I think this is something that, that people do miss out on. It is hard to catch a dog that does not want to be caught. And if you have one that, that, that you're trying to get them to do something and you can't put your hands on them, chasing them actually becomes a game and it's a game you're going to lose most of the time. So having that, having even a, a house, an inside drag line is not a bad idea. Having yeah. something that, you know, and I'm okay with even using a short leash inside because you're going to be with the dog. The issue with having some sort of line that is, that could get hung up is for a dog that, you know, is not, I wouldn't leave that on a dog in the backyard. Unsupervised. Right. So if he's in the house and once you get your hands on that leash, then you can, you can guide him the way that you need to. But if you don't have a leash on him or any sort of line on him, it becomes very tricky to put him in the right position. And that's even beyond it. I mean, that, that's a puppy thing. That's a huge deal with puppies. Um, that would be whole... basic training. It should be basic understanding. <laughs> Anytime you bring home a new dog, puppy, yeah. dog you got from the shelter, put him on a line yeah. so you can have some yeah. control. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because it's amazing when you have the ability to direct them at a distance and then I don't care if it's three feet or 10 feet, yeah. just being able to, to get your hands on them without having to be right on top of them is, is a giant deal. Okay. So I don't know if we've even talked about this, but I think there's a progress there too in the training where you're holding the leash and then there's a gap between you're holding the leash and then being off leash, which yes. is the leash is on the ground. And I don't know if everybody sees that. I think that that's a common mistake where folks want to go from, I've got my hands on him to now he's off leash. And there's a step in between there, which is dragging it. Yes. I think that's a big deal because once that again, is, yeah. you're going to have a lot of those two steps forward, one step back types of situations, especially as you increase distraction level. That so is, being yeah, that to, is the transition. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to back up. Okay. All right. What you got next? The next one I would say really common is people are afraid to turn off the dial. They are afraid yeah. to adjust stimulation according to the environment. So dog is doing great. He is great about being on his place. But as soon as the kids come home from school, as soon as our friends come, whatever, then, you know, he will not do it. No matter how many times we push the button, he won't hold, he won't hold his position. Yeah. Uh, they don't understand that that intensity of pressure has to change depending on the intensity of the situation that the dog is dealing with. It's just like adjusting the volume on your television. If you're watching and it's just you and things are quiet, then you can hear it. But now your kids come home from school and they're yelling and you can't hear the TV program anymore. You have to turn the volume up and get the dog's attention back. So that's a really big one is, I think, hesitancy to turn that dial. Okay. So as far as increasing stimulation based on distraction level or basing, I guess even based on the response that you're getting from the dog, we talk sometimes about, well, this dog takes this level or this dog requires this level. And it's really got so much more to do with the moment and what's going on with that dog right now. And that's where the watching the dog and basing everything off of the dog and what's going on with the dog, I think is a key thing that, that folks, so they want to go, well, he's a two. He's always a two. Well, he's not always two. That's just, it's not how it works. It's not always two. And so knowing your dog, but also being able to adjust depending on, depending on what kind of response you're getting. Well, and how much adjustment, boy, I don't know what you see. I don't know what you see necessarily with your dogs and in the mm -hmm. field dogs and what you guys do, but just in, in my industry, because we're 
dealing with so many different situations, different breeds too. It's, it, I think it's stunning to people that let's say I work on a rear set dial most of the time. So this is a, let's say it's a collar that goes from zero to 127 and the dog in theory around the house, vast majority of the time, he's around 10, maybe 12. And the dog is very responsive. People can be absolutely stunned that now you go to a different environment. Maybe there's a bunch of dogs around, there's squirrels, whatever. There's things that are very interesting to your dog. You can be on 40 and 50, which is a five times fold increase on pressure. And the dog is behaving reliably with not being overwhelmed on that 40 or 50, basically behaving as reliably as he does on that 10 at home. So the behavior output is the same. The dog is behaving well. He's listening, but it takes that much more volume to get and maintain his attention. That is stunning to people, I think. So in a situation like that, and you're getting compliance, my assumption is that you're going to you have to be, to me, you kind of have to be careful about that because as the distraction level starts to decrease, then you've got to, you've got to react to that. And it's not just because we're out at the park and there's movement going on. It's not that we're out at the park. It's that there's distraction and there's movement and your dog hasn't reset himself. I guess Ooh, would be that, the, love, that yeah, is a lovely way. He has not reset himself to you, to being yeah. in that relationship with you and paying attention. That's a nice way to explain it. So, so, and I see this sometimes where where we have a dog that, that is in, you're in that distraction level. And once you get up to the level where you're getting the response that you want, sometimes you can immediately back down at least just, I don't know if you necessarily would go back to the 10, but you can come back a little bit. And there's a line here. And I think this is tricky for people too, because I want to give as low of a level as possible, but get the response that I want. And that, that numbers that it's a moving, it's a moving. And there's a line too, between nagging the dog with not enough. And you, you've got to figure out where that is. And that's, that's a lot. It's a lot for somebody that's new to, to this technique. Because it's scary to push button. You know, I was just thinking about that. I remember, I remember times when my children were little and I would be very distracted. Usually I was at the computer, I was doing some work and you could vaguely here in the background or you didn't even really notice it where they'd be going mom 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 and then eventually you'd get mom because you know it's important the dog is getting in the garbage or whatever something's important and you're like and it wakes you up but now yeah you can immediately i'm like you don't need to yell at me well i did to get your attention mom now we can talk though at our, we're back in tune. It might not be quite as low, but we're back in tune. So yeah, the dial, I think if people think of it in that similar way that you're going up and down to match, where is your dog in sync with you? Have you regained that dog's attention? So that's just one of the ways that I think about using that pressure, but that is such a common mistake. People are really afraid to turn the dog. Sure, sure. Do you think that comes from just a lack of knowing what simulation feels like, or is it, is it just a just uncomfortable I, concept? I think that it, I still think we're really stuck with, we're still very stuck with this. This tool was originally called a shock collar. Sure. And I think that just human psychology is so concerned about electricity and getting a shock and that from the time we're toddlers, we're raised that electricity comes out of the wall. If you touch Thanks. the socket, it will kill you. Yep. Right. And I think that whole mindset is we're just really have a hard time making the leap to how yep. different this is. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by folks that are 
uncomfortable with it to the point that they're not willing to feel the stimulation, but they are okay with using the stimulation. I struggle with that. I, I have no problem feeling stimulation. So that, that would lead me to another, some of the common mistakes that we see are equipment issues. I like to know that my gear's working correctly before I put it on the dog. And so tell me, what's your process? Well, my process is always turn it on before I put it on the dog. <clears throat> and depending on what unit I'm using, some units have a transmitter that you have to turn on and obviously the collar. Right. Some transmitters are all, all, always on. So then I always test to see how much battery life I have. Generally, I'm using units that have either a color indicator with their flashing icons or they have an icon indicator that shows me battery life. So I usually push the vibration or the tone or a continuous stim or whatever to see how much battery do I have left? Because if I have battery that's just about to drop down to the next lower level, I don't want to be out in the field with that collar. So I test the battery and then I put it in my hands and I usually, and I don't test my collar stimulation every time I put them on. I always test a brand new collar out of the box. Okay. But I go up through a range of levels to make sure it seems to be cycling up the way that it should. So that's my process. And then I put it on the dog. So I expect you have the same problem that I have. What problem sounds right word? It's I have, there's no telling how many systems are in my vehicle right now uh, or on my desk. And so my wife's got, you know, She's got a collar that she uses at the house and the kids have got a couple of collars and I have several that I carry. So you have to be careful to make sure that you have the right two pieces oh, yeah. that, that are together. And uh, nowadays too, we have pretty much everything that we sell has the ability to be what most stuff that we sell you can buy it as a one dog and you can add it as a second collar. And so a lot of the Turning everything on, checking everything is to make sure that you have your toggle switches or your slides or that everything's set on the correct setup. I'm testing a collar right now that has a slider switch on the side and I tend to want it to be in the up position and my wife tends to want it to be in the down position and I don't know why. And so I have to just make sure that when I pick up the transmitter that I go, okay, this is how this is set up. Most people don't have to deal with that, but it is one of those things that the collars can become unsafe. It's uncommon, but it can happen. And so to me, there is a process of let's turn everything on. We need to make sure everything's charged and we need to make sure that the handheld and the collar are communicating with each other before we put it on the door. You'll have those situations where somebody will go, it's not working. Well, it's not working because th th there's sometimes a reason that it's not working. It's not broken. It's you thought it was turned on. I have a problem and I don't know. One of my kids walks one of the dogs and we have a lot of wildlife at the house and she's got a real high prey drive. So she has to have a collar on when she's out. Just it makes life a whole lot easier. And he likes to bring the collar back and take it off the dog and put it back up in the cabinet. And I don't know why, but he refuses to cut it off. And so, and fortunately it's, it's Tritronics collar and it's got probably a 60 hour runtime. So as long as you catch it right, it's not a big deal. Occasionally it's dead and it's important to know that all your stuff's working and that it's matched up and that you're on the right, you're on the right setup. That's a big deal because you just can't, you can't be, you can't be reliable with your stuff if you don't know that everything's working properly. Do you have a process for charging? 
I'm not as religious as some people are. I've a number of friends that like using timers because, you know, most of the equipment mm -hmm. that I'm doing at this point is two hour, like a two hour sure. recharge type of thing. Yep. So they put timers in so that they don't overcharge, yeah. which is another mm -hmm. problem that we do see with people mischarging and overcharging and reducing yep. battery life. It's not like it's an yep. immediate training problem, but then they get frustrated. Like, why does my equipment seem like a year after I purchased it? Sure. I'm having problems. You can't leave those things on the charger overnight. So some of my friends and stuff really like using the timers. I'm just a person that I tend to charge my things when like I'm sitting here, if I'm going to sit here at the computer, because mm. I always have extra callers on hand, right? Sure. Same as you. I'm not, I don't have just one. So if I'm going to sit here at the computer and I'm going to be doing something for a couple hours, then I'm going to charge them right here on my desk and I know pick them up and take them off right away. Yeah. So I'll just monitor that way. That may not work for everybody, but how about you? Do you have something special? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, most of what I'm using personally in, in my gear is GPS based stuff. So it's e-collars, but it's, they also have GPS in them. And so I'm in, I'm back in a weird spot where I have to charge everything every day. I might be able to get away with going every other day, but so it's weird. It's like, it's 1998 for me, 19. <laughs> 85, where, where you're a little bit, you're a little paranoid about charging. So, yeah. so I charge, I charge most of my stuff. If I'm working dogs today and I'm working dogs tomorrow, then we're charging yeah. everything tonight. That's pretty uncommon unless you're running GPS gear. Most of the stuff, it doesn't have to be done that way. I do think that people should be on some sort of consistent. We charge, we charge once a week or we charge every couple of days, depending on what's going on, especially when you're in a hardcore training stage. Uh, um, you don't want to look up and get everything ready and come to find out, oh, I thought, I thought you charged the collar. No, I thought you were going to charge the collar. Now I've got a collar that doesn't have a charge on it and I'm trying to work my dog. So being consistent with it is, is important, especially if you're sharing it with somebody. Now, like I said, we have a collar that three different people are using and nobody likes to charge it but me. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. yeah. We have yeah. An, I never really thought about that much before. I just, for such a long time, I have two collars for most all of my units because yeah, otherwise I'd probably be notorious about having something sure. dead and not, but that way I've always got the backup. I'm like, oh, this one's dead. I've got one that matches. I've got it already synced. So I'll use that one and I'll charge this one while I, I just always have two. I always have a backup. Well, it's a, it is a thing too, but that's we have rapid charge on pretty much everything that we sell, but the other issue is that batteries last for a long time. And so people mm -hmm. can get into, they get into a habit of just not thinking about it. And so, mm -hmm. so I like to, I, it's kind of same thing. If, if I know I'm training in the morning, I'm prepping my gear the night before you could very easily get a charge something else for folks, especially if they're going somewhere to train. If you, if you have that issue, if you have a car set up, I typically don't. A lot of stuff, it depends on whose gear you're using. Some of the stuff is USB charging now. So have it set up where you can charge stuff in your car. Mm -hmm. You've got a 30 minute drive to the, where you're doing your work, you get 30 minutes on them. And that's a good bit for most of the college. Yeah. So I think it's just like anything else. I think having a, this is how we do it. This is my process and it fits what I'm doing. I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. The good news is I think at this point, as opposed to when we all got started way back when, we're all used to charging stuff anyway. We got charged. Oh, yeah phones all the time. Yeah. And so we're just so used to doing those things that I think it's yeah. less of a problem, but yeah. Yeah. But it does come down to knowing your gear and knowing how long it's been used and when you're planning on using it again, just being mentally prepared. And speaking to that, when we were talking about going over things, people should check, make sure that the charging ports are well covered and things yeah. like that. There's a lot of those little things. Clean it once in a while. Perfect. I mean, my dogs, if I'm out 
if I take the duck toller out swimming in the muck sure. and she gets, I, I got to take once in a while, I take the contact points and I want to clean behind everything and then tighten them back down. And there's just maintenance. And that's probably a whole other topic. We started out with just what are problems, but a lot of times problems are sure. related to not having good maintenance and making sure everything's working and cleaned up properly. I've had people come in and They've dropped the transmitter a few times and they didn't realize you broke something with the antenna or something with a component inside of it has to be. That's what's going to cause you a training problem. I've had people that put a little carabiner hook on the instead of using a belt clip or instead of using a lanyard, they want to attach a carabiner hook to their remote so that they can clip it to their jeans. But they're sure. attached by that key ring a big key ring. And then that's going to change the change the range that they're getting on their collar. And they think the collar's not working. Well, it's a modification that you made that is actually interfering with the way the equipment yeah. works. Yeah. Yeah. Manufacturers love that. They absolutely yeah. love that when they're getting blamed for something that they had absolutely yeah. nothing to do with. Yeah. So yeah, that is one of those things. So, okay. So let's move outside of the operator error and, and steps. What, what other, what are the situational things are you saying if we go through the process of making sure that our collar, everything's working, make sure you've turned it on. I've seen that. It shouldn't even have to be mentioned, but it, that has happened. So you've got everything on, you've got it charged, all your equipment's functioning properly. Then it's really a matter of what kind of training errors are you making? Have you properly taught your dog what to do have you and that's why we've had whole topics on collar conditioning don't assume your dog knows something if you haven't taken the time to do the practice sessions do the various setups do the various scenarios then you probably need to back up in your training i think a lot of people get into trouble because they make really big leaps of faith in what okay. their dog knows and the dog doesn't know it. Be the dogs do not generalize that well. Knowing something in one context does not immediately transfer over to understanding in the next context. And that's, I think, a really important thing for anybody working with a collar or working with a dog in general, regardless yeah. of what tool, yeah. right? Regardless. That's got, yeah. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with that, with that being e collar. This is a basic dog 101 stance. They, the dogs don't get it just when, why is he good in your house and he's not good when you go to your friend's house? Because it's a whole different environment. You sure. have to be able to stay the course and work with your dog and show him, yes, sit is still sit, even though we're at grandpa's house today. Oh, come is still come, even though the neighbor's cat just walked across the driveway, right? It's just, it's a matter of doing the work and showing the dog. Essentially, I think of it like capturing snapshots. Okay, so if I want a dog that's going to be good in pretty much any scenario that I'm going to take him into, I have to basically create a mental picture of what are all the scenarios I want to sure. train him in. I want him to be good when I take him with my dogs. I want him good when I go camping. I want him good when I go hiking. I want him good when I sit at an outdoor cafe and when I have my lunch. I want him under my table. I want him good when people come to visit me. All of these scenarios. So those are all pictures, snapshots. Well, if I want him to do all those things and do things well in those environments, then I better go practice in every one of those environments or something very similar in order to the dog to have snapshots that matches what mine were to begin with. And so that's a big mistake that people make is they don't realize you thought you trained your dog because you went to class and you made him do stuff in your backyard. But now you want to go to the local brewery, hang out with your friends, and you want your dog to lay down at your feet and behave. 
you haven't done that yet. So don't expect miracles until you've taken and practiced that a few times. <sighs> we had that, we had that last weekend. It was, uh, we were camping, but it's RV and we got a new, we got a new travel trailer and Dakota at the house was freaked out by it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly. And she's not, she's a shepherd. And so she doesn't trust anything. She assumes the worst. And then it took a while to get her comfortable and we had to back up on a few things. Mm-hmm. And she stayed on a leash the majority of the time, just because we had, there were, there were a lot of distractions even after we got to where we were staying, but it was a, it was definitely one of those. It was part of the process of just getting her used to, okay, we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this. And, and she was fine with all of it. It just, we just had to back up a little mm-hmm. bit. And I think people, they move them too quickly into situations that they're not prepared for. And where if they would just go, okay, snap a leash on them, give them a place command, give them a good spot to, to stay and let's go through some of this, then everything would go fine. But it's that putting them in situations that they're not mentally prepared for yet. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, get frustrated over something that's just not that big a deal. Yeah, that's interesting to me because, and people do get very frustrated. I may have heard that a lot over the years. So like, why can't he do this and this? And I said, I try to make analogies that people understand. And if they've had children or they have children, I say, okay, do you remember what it was like in second grade when you were learning to print your letters or first grade, whenever it was, and you're learning to print letters and you're learning to write words like cat, right? Why are you yelling? Did you yell at your kid by the end of second grade? Say, why aren't you writing in cursive and full paragraphs? It just doesn't make any sense to me that we understand with children that there's a process and uh, with humans, there's a process. But with our dogs, we forget that they need an incremental process to go from point A to whatever our final goal is as well. So, yeah, that's the point. Well, I think though. I, I think too, though, that there is the, there's the misconception that, that your training is, has a start point and an end point. And that's just not, that's not the reality of it. If you put them into a new situation, I don't care how old they are or what level of training that they have. There's going to be at least a certain <laughs> level of either there's a learning curve or there is some misunderstanding or there's just, they got to be exposed to the situation. And you as the handler have got to understand that and be prepared for what's, what's about to happen. Yeah. And you can't be under the impression that, you know, that they're going to be a hundred percent everywhere. I think the more that you do, the less you have to do. Yes, I agree. Yeah. That's because Sound right, but but the more that that you focus on, I'll use we've used athletes before. We use highly skilled folks. You will find that that the really talented guys they work on the basics more than they do anything else, and making sure that they are doing the basics correctly instead of working on. You would think that the high level guys would spend all of their time doing the high level things, but a lot of practice is working on the basics and it's building and it's establishing, making sure that foundation is correct. And the same thing's true with dogs. If you're under the impression that my dog knows how to do this and we'll never have to revisit that, that's just not how it works. No. And so, so that's kind of, that, that, yeah, that, and that, and people struggle with that. We have a big joke about finished dogs and I don't know if you, yes. I don't think I've ever had a finished dog. Well, there's no such thing. That's the issue. And anyone tells you, and I have been guilty of it. I have said it in front of the wrong people. 
and they will put you into a situation and go, oh, really? Well, and you can, you can push a dog to failure very easily. And I think a lot of us do that. I think that's where it falls into, that's where a lot of people fall into mistakes where they, they test instead of train. Oh. Yeah. You know, where they yeah. go, I wonder if he'll do this. Yeah. And, and then you get failure and you're, you have a dog that's comfortable doing doubles. Okay. So, so two retrieves. So you, you throw a dummy, you throw a dummy, picks up the dummy, comes back, picks up the other. And then somebody's like, well, if he can do that, then he could do this. So we're going to add it. We're going to add this next step to it. And we're going to add this distraction and, and they're testing instead of training. So it is, a, it's an ongoing process and, and it's, they're going to get a part of it. And you can even see it sometimes in their faces. You'll see mm -hmm. them recognize. They're like, oh, I knew I was supposed to do that. I just didn't do it. Getting oh. greedy. Dog, well, the yeah. humans get greedy and then they set the we do. fail. Yeah. Well, but we get our egos involved with it and then somebody else shows up and we want to go, well, look what my dog can do. <laughs> and that's the other thing. We tend to, there's nothing worse than someone that bragging on your dogs before they've done something that will get you in trouble in a, from a training standpoint. And so you want to, you want to avoid that unless you can handle a lot of heat. So, so we tend to avoid that. Well. So it's a lot of know your equipment, know your dog, know yourself, understand the and, situation. Yeah. And when something is going, I think when people are getting into trouble, one of the things that I've is don't just keep repeating mistakes. I give myself a rule of three as maximum, and that's what I teach to my clients. So if okay. you try to get your dog to do something and three times in a row, it, it works or it does. I'm sorry. Three times in a row, it doesn't work. Okay. You need to step back. I mean, right. I usually step back faster than that, but that's the max I give my clients. Sure. If you're trying to do something, you got three failures, it's not going to get better on four, five, right. and six. So you need to yeah. step back and go, okay, what is the problem? I got to go through, is everything okay with the equipment? What can I do to make the problem easier for the dog? So don't keep plowing forward and certainly don't assume that it's just disobedience with something like that. They have to go through. I think that's the thing, Steve, is everybody needs to have a mental checklist of what are the problems that I need to look at potentially here and go through that checklist to figure out how can I make the dog successful? How can I no, get actually, right? That leads me to the question of, I don't even know if it should be a mental checklist. And I don't know if you do this with your clients. Do you have a list or is it one of those things that the client needs to make that list? Does the handler need to, there's certain things that I want to accomplish, say with a puppy before they get to a certain stage, there's certain things that I want to introduce. And I want to get these 10, 12 things done, um, you know, when they're at a very young age, just because they're going to deal with, these are the things they're going to deal with. But do you have that with your clients or is that something that, that, that's something that people need to work on themselves? I've always tried to be an instructor that doesn't assume too much or put more on them. Yeah. It's my job to teach. So I have a lot of written materials that people have. When I'm going through a sequence, I let them know this is specifically what you're working on right now. Don't Please don't work ahead. And yeah. if you get stuck, you reach out to me. At, at this point, you reach out. I have homework sheets that I give people. So it's very specific about this was the problem you were encountering. Here's your fix. So I am pretty good about giving out materials with people. Because you remember, I'm training folks that are pet owners and everybody's got different goals. Sure. So it, it's not like I can write a recipe of here's point A to point Z for you. I can give you an overall for most pets, what most people want, but everybody has different goals. So everything's sure. a little bit individually tailored as far as their homework sheets and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that if you talk about mistakes, I think one of the biggest ones is that people don't go into their training knowing what they want the, the result to be. And I think that at least having an idea of, okay, well, these are the five things I need my dog to do or the two things I need my dog to do. It just depends on what you want. I like to tell folks, okay, that, that can change as we go along because a lot of people will come into it going, look, if he'll just come when I call him and he'll stop jumping on people, that's all I want to happen. Okay. Well, Great. That easy. And we can get that done pretty quickly. At that point, then it's like, oh, well, if you can do this, then you can do this. What else can he do? So I think that having at least a plan, once, once you have established that we're no longer dealing with, I'm in a panic because I've got this out of control animal. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm actually training yeah. that having, having a plan of this is what I want. And this is how I get from here to here. I think that's the part of it that, that a lot of people miss out on. Yeah. I do have people fill out a vision statement. So okay. I have a vision statement and they, it is about what things do you want to stop and solve, but what do you want to do? What's your wish list? Even if you don't think it's possible, what would your wish list be in terms of where would you want to take your dog if you knew he was going to be well-behaved enough? What tricks would you potentially like him to do? So I have people write that stuff down on a vision statement because then if you're planning a trip and you want to get somewhere, if you don't know what the destination is, sure. you're just going to be wandering around. So <laughs> same thing with training a dog, figure out what the destination is. What do you want? And aim high. You might yeah. be surprised how close you can get. I think that's probably or beyond. Yeah. That's something that I've been guilty of where I don't put something on this dog enough and it doesn't push the dog and it doesn't push me. And that's, that's something that I think everybody's a little guilty of with their dogs. So, all right. All right. Well, it's a good discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. For more information or to purchase Robin's online dog training programs, visit eCollars.com. This is Robin McFarland's eCollar Training. This video series takes a systematic approach to eCollar use from introduction to off-leash control. Three dogs of varying personalities were adopted from a shelter environment and trained daily over the course of three weeks. This series captures the real-time footage starting from day one of introducing the e-collar and progresses to the point of off-leash control and working around real-world distractions. Robin takes you step-by-step -step through the process of laying a foundation, solving common problems, working through distractions, and graduating to off-leash freedom. The systematic approach and detailed instruction is designed specifically with the novice e-collar user in mind, but even experienced trainers will find a gem or two to add to the training toolbox. Each of the dogs in this video series, Grace, Brandy, and Bonnie, started training within 72 hours of being adopted from a shelter environment. What you will see is real-time training sessions, not special editing or previously trained dogs. Watch dogs with different temperaments being worked through challenges toward the goal of off-leash control and a greatly improved relationship with their handler. Robin's e-collar instructional materials are clear, concise, and never sacrifice the physical or emotional well-being of the dog. With this training, your dog will be calmer, more controlled, and be able to experience the joy of off-leash freedom. If you've longed to be able to trust your dog off-leash, but don't have the confidence to start training with an e-collar, this video series is for you. 
any dog owner that is interested in learning an easier way to communicate with their dog while gaining off-leash reliability will benefit from this DVD series. This five disc set will take you step by step through the process from starting the training and finding a level up through working around distractions and being ready to go off-leash.